Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. On this edition of the Monday Overreaction Yahoo Sports College podcast, we are going to discuss which of the startling results from Saturday gave us the greatest shock value, which of the outstanding quarterbacks currently tearing up college football we would take first if we were drafting, which week one overreaction we now regret the most, and whether or not Tennessee has done enough to join the list of first-year coach dumpster fires with some of the controversy that came out of their loss to Florida Saturday. And we'll also cover which drive in college football we like the least. I'm Pat Forty. I'm joined by Pete Thamel. And we are not joined by Dan Wetzel, who is on the lam. He's actually got some NFL duties on Sunday night, so he will not be taping the Overreaction podcast. But he did also have some... uh, soccer activity and if you remember from last week we we outed dan actually dan i believe outed himself as the coach of a 32 to nothing eight and under soccer indoor victory thereby making him the steve spurrier of youth soccer pat you uh, used the term outed like he was embarrassed by it he was proud (laughs) of that result (laughs) it's a very good point very good point he was he was he was rather proud of that and uh his team uh, actually has captured the Kingdom Cup championship in Michigan. So congratulations to that team and to young Wetzel. I don't know about old Wetzel, whether he deserves any congratulations or not. He also passes on. You want to talk about adding shocks to the weekend, Pete? This news. He is drinking craft beer at Arcadia Ales and also went to another craft brewery in Kalamazoo over the weekend. How shocked are you to hear that? That has to be an advertising play because it offends all sensibilities. Maybe he went to the craft brewery because they sell Fiji water, and it's the only place in Kalamazoo that sells Dan's bougie, highbrow, preferred water brand. Uh, I will say this. Decent little brewery scene in Kalamazoo. I went I went through there a few term, times during the Fleck era, a uh, gritty little town with, uh, with some good brewery scene there. So, I mean, look, like we can't be that surprised Dan's drinking craft beer because Dan's drinking beer. So, I mean, it, you know, if the other parents were going to go there and, you know, this isn't this isn't like 1994 at UMass anymore where he can like take his own beer into the place. So he'll conform. But. Yeah, I'm sure he did it begrudgingly and then like drank a six pack of Bush Light in his hotel room. 
Yeah, uh, well, he did. He did also. Yes, he added the note that he drank Bushlight at the hotel. Uh, I think in between his brewery stops. So Dan is still keeping it real and keeping it bad uh, for those of you who were concerned. But uh, yeah, we were happy to to besmirch Dan a little bit. I'm sure he enjoyed the the kids from the leafy suburbs just grinding their heels of their cleats into the less fortunate young children from other parts of Michigan at this tournament. Uh, but that's one of the deals of this podcast. If you're not here, you get talked about. Dan isn't here, so he gets talked about this week. But we will carry on without him and uh, talk a little college football here. And uh, Pete, the season really had been, I think, a little bit shock-free, drama-free to a degree. There hadn't been a bunch of crazy games. There hadn't been there'd been some surprising results for sure, but not just some wild things going on. And then that really changed Saturday afternoon and Saturday night. And uh, a lot of a lot of stuff happened. So I'm going to give you a list of four or five things, and you tell me which one, which of these jaw droppers dropped your jaw the most or the furthest. Uh, first off, Old Dominion, which had been terrible this year, absolutely awful. Yeah, beating Virginia Tech, undefeated, thirteenth ranked Virginia Tech as a 28-point dog, and scoring 49 points on a Bud Foster defense. Uh, The very idea of a MAC team beating a Big Ten team by four touchdowns, which happened when Buffalo beat Rutgers, that we are, we do have to consider Rutgers a Big Ten team because they'd let them in the league. So that's on you, Jim Delaney. Uh, Nebraska losing to anyone 39 to nothing at halftime. For those of you who remember Nebraska winning national titles in the 70s and the 90s and should have won another title in the 80s, one of the great programs of all time to be behind anyone 39 to nothing uh, as they were to Michigan. Oregon blowing a completely sure thing against Stanford, not once really, but twice, and losing a game in just ghastly fashion. Or Fifth and final, Louisville going from third in total offense in 2016 when Lamar Jackson was winning the Heisman Trophy to currently 124th this year following a three-point eruption against Virginia. So five shocking outcomes or developments from over the weekend. Pete, which one do you say was the most shocking? Well, just a quick note on the Louisville shock, Pat. Uh, They were third last year. With Third Lamar Never mind when he was oh, winning my. it. Like this was last year okay. to now that they've dropped. They've dropped about as many spots as you can drop. <laughs> like like yeah. it would be almost statistically impossible to fall further than uh, than Louisville's offense have off off the uh, off the cliff of uh, they are they are complete inertia, just awful there. But no, my shock has to be Virginia Tech. Of course, I will own the fact that I wrote after the Virginia Tech Florida State game that Bud Foster should be put in the College Football Hall of Fame for his long tenured. He has 300 career wins as staffs he's been part of. He's certainly been an elite defensive coordinator. And then he goes out and gives up 49 to Old Dominion, which had been blown off the field by both Liberty and Charlotte. Uh, So to me, just watching that game unfold was like, it was one of those, I should flip over to that game. Nah, I'm not going to flip it. I mean, they can't lose to Old Dominion. Nah, they can't lose to Old Dominion. Then obviously uh, the, the quarterback, Josh Aston, gets hurt. 
things start to spiral. And uh, yeah, I got to love Old Dominion. Not only did they not run out the clock, they ran up the score with their last <laughs> touchdown. <laughs> I thought our friend Carter Blackburn had a great call. He was like, why not just celebrate in the end zone? <laughs> because they went up two touchdowns, uh, two touchdowns at the end. Just the, 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 just how rancid Old Dominion has been this year and then has been in recent history compared to, you know, Virginia Tech looked promising. They look like the only team that could theoretically have challenged Clemson for the uh, for the ACC title. So for them to just fall off a cliff, give up 50 points, and, uh, and, and, and just lose a really a historically bad game. I mean, Bobby Wilder, the old Dominion coach, after that game was saying that this is what, like the biggest moment in program history, maybe athletic department history, Hampton Roads area history. Like for, for Virginia Tech to, to lose a game like that um, is, is, is shocking, more shocking than all of the shocking things that you had rattled off. Yeah, that's, I mean, uh, old Dominion had been averaging 18 points a game. And they scored 49 on Virginia Tech. Uh, maybe the lesson here is don't, if you're in the ACC, don't schedule these non-ACC teams on the road. Uh, North Carolina learns that constantly whenever they schedule East Carolina on the road and lose, as they did earlier this year. Uh, and then, yeah, you go into that renowned snake pit at Old Dominion. You don't, you don't come <laughs> out with a W, clearly. Uh, it's it is stunning, and yeah, I think it gives the ACC nothing to hang its head on other than Clemson. You know, it, it, right now Duke may be the second best team, and Duke's quarterback has a broken clavicle. So, yeah. can uh, you remember a league, Pat, that is like freefall from relevancy as fast as the ACC? Yeah. I guess the Big Ten, but but I just just you think about two years ago, ACC had a national champion, ACC had a ridiculous bowl record, and there was just optimism flowing. And now I, I joked in, a, in our 10 takeaways column that if the debate is between Duke, Syracuse, and NC State for the second best team in the ACC, and it doesn't involve basketball, that's a problem. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know. All right, my choice for the biggest shocker of the weekend, Pete, has got to be Oregon. It shocked me so much that I went ahead and tweeted with a minute left in the game and Oregon with a first down in Stanford territory and a lead, and Stanford owning one timeout, that it was over, that Oregon had iced it, and what a great win it was for Mario Cristobal. And then, oh, lo and behold, what, 20 minutes later, Oregon had lost. Unbelievable giveaway by the Ducks. Uh, there at the end of regulation, instead of taking a couple of knees and probably punting the ball to Stanford and bottling Stanford up deep in its own territory with ah, maybe 15 seconds left. They kept running plays. They fumbled the ball. Stanford, nice drive to tie the game. Stanford wins in overtime. So there was that. But then an earlier disaster uh, might even have been worse. I don't know whether anything's worse than that. But when they were – Oregon was winning 24-7 to and had a first and goal at the one – Took a loss, second down, fumbles the ball, and Stanford runs it back 80 yards for a touchdown. It could have been 31-7, to game over. Instead, it was 24-14, Stanford has life. And then you do it again at the end of regulation. That is that is as bad a giveaway in a big game, a game that really could have reestablished the program, uh, which had, uh, it's fallen the last couple of years, really helped Mario Cristobal get started. 
you just flat give one away. Uh, astounding to me that that happened. So it gets Stanford through, keeps them undefeated, sets up a nice little undefeated game with Notre Dame on Saturday at South Bend. But Oregon will regret that for a long, long time. Your thoughts on that game, Petey? Yeah, Dan Quinn and Kyle Shanahan thought that was terrible play calling at the end by Mario Cristobal and Marcus Arroyo. <laughs> I mean, that was textbook how to bungle a game in the final minute. I mean, my God, what a what a disaster. And you're right, Pat. Like, this is something that there was a lot of momentum behind Mario Cristobal's start. They were 3-0. and They'd been recruiting well. And this certainly is going to cast some doubts on the whole operation there. I mean, they ragdolled Stanford in the trenches for most of the game. They looked like the much better team. No one would argue that. But when coaching undermines your playing and your players, that's a problem. It is. It is. They, they gave it away directly because the, the two things that you really need to win the games at the end, understanding time and score and securing the football. And maybe it's not the coach's fault that the running back didn't secure the football, but you don't put him in that position. You have you take a knee and you end the game. So bad, bad loss for Oregon. And as as we do here on our Overreaction Monday podcast, we like to dwell on the negative. So way to go, Ducks. Uh, but we are going to take a quick detour to the more positive side here and talk about quarterbacks who are off to fantastic starts. Uh, there are a number of them. A lot of them are first-year starters. Uh, really interesting, actually, if you look at the uh, the numbers that um, of pass efficiency, eight of the top ten nationally are first-year starting quarterbacks. Tua Tagovailoa leads the nation in efficiency with a ridiculous 230 rating. Will Greer, Dwayne Haskins. Mitchell Guadagni from Toledo, Kyler Murray, Jake Fromm, Trevor Lawrence is eighth, uh, Brady White of Memphis ninth, Cole McDonald tenth, my Hawaii. Pete, uh, if you've got your choice of a quarterback, if you're looking at this from an NFL perspective and you can have, not all these guys are draft eligible, but if you could take out of the draft eligible ones, who would you take first at this moment? At this moment, among the draft eligible ones. I would take Justin Herbert. I got to watch a lot of that Oregon-Stanford game the other night, and despite the disastrous ending, and Herbert did not play well in overtime, I mean, he was awesome. He looked so composed, so comfortable on the move. He looked like the epitome of an NFL quarterback prospect. He was accurate. He was big. He was strong. And he constant, constantly made the right decision. He was 25 of 27 in regulation, Pat. I mean, wow. it was it was stunning. He wow. was so good and did so consistently the right thing. I was really blown away with his consistency and poise. Yeah, no, that was a, it was a great showing by him. Just ended badly for his team. Uh, 346 yards, 10 and a half yards per completion, uh, 79% accuracy for the game, and you know, they after having played who they had played before, Bowling Green, Portland State, San Jose State, this was a huge step up in class, and he was certainly more than ready for it and uh, really just did a, did a fantastic job and gave, really gave him a chance to win. And as we've talked about, the coaches screwed it up as much as anything. Uh, if I'm going to take one guy draft eligible, you know, and all this will, of course, probably evolve as the season goes along, and then if you get guys into uh, – into pro days and things like that. But I just, I'm blown away by Dwayne Haskins of Ohio state. He has just been so, so good. Uh, he's the best pure thrower. 
I think uh, Urban Meyer has had, at least since Alex Smith at Utah. And if you look since Alex Smith, Urban Meyer's quarterbacks have not done well in the NFL. But I think the Dwayne Haskins skill set translates very well to the NFL. He's got an arm. He's got accuracy. He's completing 76% of his passes so far this year. Uh, he's thrown 16 TDs, just one interception. He's not a runner, and they don't need him to be a runner. They've got other runners. And I know Urban has always liked an offense where quarterback run is a threat. Uh, and maybe they will ask him to do some of that, but they sure don't need him to now because he's doing everything else so well. And, uh, you know, I've, just, I've been so impressed with how he has handled this uh, first year as a starter. He's 6'3", 220, certainly big enough. He does have athleticism. He just hadn't been forced to use it. And why use it when you're throwing the ball the way he is? So if you give me Dwayne Haskins, you can have Justin Herbert. And uh, we'll see which which budding NFL GM between us uh, gets, gets the better pick. Yeah, I think it's a good point, Pat, about uh, Haskins not really running the ball. That had obviously been for years for Urban Meyer, his Linus blanket on third and short. He was going to run the quarterback. I knew it. You knew it. The opposing defensive coordinator used it. He valued the quarterback run game so much. In one of the maybe silver linings of his departure for those three games is that the quarterback run game disappeared. Now, Haskins is not the kind of athlete that JT Barrett was in terms of moving around and, and, and some of the other guys they've had over the years, like Tim Tebow. But the elimination of of any kind of quarterback run game. And, and the fact that it works, works just fine. Yeah. Drop eight against Dwayne Haskins. He's going to figure it out. He's going to wait and, and find it, find a guy and find a crease and get the ball there and throw a dime. And so I, I feel like we've seen an evolution in Urban Meyer's offense because now the quarterback doesn't have the same skill set that we may be accustomed to his quarterbacks having. Yeah. Yeah. No. And that's, you know what it may make them less predictable on third and three is that you, you don't know the quarterback run is coming. You have to worry about a bubble screen or a slant or an out or a hitch uh, or, you know, obviously the running backs running the ball. But yeah, that was the most predictable thing in college football from 2007 through last year, basically <laughs> for a decade was urban Meyer quarterback run on third and short or fourth and short uh, as uh, Michigan knows. Um, anyway, so no, it's, it's interesting. It's been a very good year for quarterbacks, which I don't think we thought that would be the case coming in. We weren't talking about them then, but we certainly are now. And I am also just fascinated by Tua Tagovailoa and his start. Uh, a lot of people thought or, um, Nick Saban may kind of default to Jalen Hurts because he doesn't make mistakes. Well, Tua's thrown 80 passes so far this year with zero interceptions. He's not making mistakes either. So it's working out very well for them. Uh, we'll watch the quarterbacks. Obviously, we'll talk plenty about them on this podcast and write plenty about them on Yahoo Sports as the season develops. All right, Peter. Uh, topic number three here. We, uh, on this podcast, pride ourselves in the the Braylon Edwards credo from week one. Excessive emotional inebriated. Uh, his <laughs> state, when when he just trashed Michigan, trashed some players, trashed Jim Harbaugh on Twitter, as the Wolverines were losing to Notre Dame in week one. Uh, things change, though. It's a long season. Things develop. Uh, you look at the Michigan Wolverines. They have not lost since. They have played pretty darn well. You look at the Texas Longhorns, uh, beaten in embarrassing fashion by what we thought would have been a Maryland team in disarray, haven't lost since. 
Miami lost badly to LSU in the opener. Hasn't lost since. Texas Tech has rebounded. Arizona has rebounded. Which week one overreaction, Pete Thamel, do you now regret? Well, I think the most regrettable would have to be against Texas, right? I mean, we were on the podcast talking about Mac, was it Mac Brown uh, appreciation podcast that we had coming out of there? <laughs> yeah, we did. And I just feel like that program is slowly lifting out of the abyss that it was in. There was an administrative abyss. They hadn't caught up in 30 years to the rest of college football. And Tom Herman and his crew are slowly doing that. I feel like my most memorable Texas overreaction moment would have come in the press conference the week of the USC game after Texas had barely beat Tulsa and there was a lot of panic in Longhorn Nation, which reverberated through the media there. One of the Texas media members asked Tom Herman, a lot of your fans think that you're arrogant. How would you respond to that? <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, here we are. Wow. Five alarm panic at Texas. <laughs> well, they've looked good against USC and good against TCU. And I'm certainly not going to put them in the same class as Oklahoma. They could be vulnerable to West Virginia, Texas Tech, et cetera. But at the very least right now, we can say Texas is back as a relevant Big 12 team. And they're back in the national rankings. And they're back with a pulse, which is better than we could say during the Charlie Strong era. Do we have to say, is Texas back? <laughs> no, we, we save that accent for the, if the Cats are going to win, yeah. which the answer is now yes in perpetuity. <laughs> yeah, the undefeated Cats, they're going to gonna keep winning. Uh, yeah. No, we'll, we'll hold off on the Texas is back uh, bandwagon, but you're right. They have certainly rebounded. And let's face it, Maryland has not looked terrible. They did have, they had one really bad loss to Temple, but otherwise that's, that's their only loss. So, uh, and beating TCU was big. They have had a bad record against TCU in recent years and uh, to get over on them was, I think, very good. They, they caught them at the right time, TCU coming off of the Ohio State game, but that's, that's football. You get people when you get them and Texas took advantage. Um, for me, I, my, my week went over reaction along with Braylon Edwards was, uh, was Michigan. Um, they lost by seven on the road to a Notre Dame team that's still undefeated. That's not a terrible loss. Now they look bad doing it. They, uh, I think they came out very tentative and unsure of what they wanted to do. And maybe that was part and parcel of not yet figuring out Shea Patterson and how to work with him best. But since then, uh, they've, they've won by 46, 25 and 46. And the last 46 was against Nebraska. And it was, as we mentioned, 39, nothing at halftime. They probably could have hung 80 on Nebraska if Harbaugh had kept his foot on the throttle. Uh, he did not. But that's that. They, look, they, they're a good defensive team, a very good defensive team, and they're showing signs of being an improving offensive team. Uh, you know, I think that they, they're, they're getting it together. Now, uh, that, all that said, we know it, talk is cheap with Michigan until they win a big game. That's been the, the problem with Harbaugh. He doesn't beat the rival teams. He doesn't beat the ranked teams. And so it is still, for now, uh, you know, wait and see. But they look a lot better than they did to begin with. We'll know a little bit more here. They've got at Northwestern, Maryland, Wisconsin, at Michigan State, Penn State. That's the next five games. And that's, there's, some, there's some legitimate tests in there. And then obviously we know about the one at the end. 
Ohio State. Got to win most of those games for, I think, everybody to get on board. But for now, I'm willing to say that Michigan certainly at least looks good enough that my reaction might have been an overreaction. But that's what we do on Overreaction Monday. All right, Peter. Uh, one other topic I wanted to get to before we get to the uh, the worst drives in college sports. Uh, we have talked a lot on this podcast about first-year coaches off to terrible starts. We talked about Scott Frost with great uh, deservedness. We talked about Willie Taggart. We talked about Chad Morris. We talked about Kevin Sumlin. A lot of first-year guys starting very badly. But we kind of uh, gave a pass to Jeremy Pruitt at Tennessee, mostly because Tennessee stunk already, and there weren't many players coming back of note. Uh, And so, you know, what Pruitt did just kind of flew under the radar to a degree. But Saturday, uh, he he, he brought himself into the discussion, shall we say, about (laughs) first-year coaches having a lousy, lousy start. They they played Florida, rival. Florida's not great. And Florida just crushed them in uh, Knoxville, 47-21. to There are two games against Power 5 opponents – Tennessee has been outscored 87 to 35. And notably in this, uh, there was a, a, an incident in which linebacker Quarte Sapp, who was a major contributor last year, but has been just a bit player this year, uh, left the field. And Jeremy Pruitt was asked about it Saturday after the game and said basically, well, without basically, he said he said that he wouldn't go in the game. This was the quote from Jeremy Pruitt, quote, he wouldn't go into the game when he was asked to go in. I don't know how things were done before, but when you tell somebody to go in and they refuse to go in, we're not going to do that around here. I asked him to leave. He didn't leave on his own. I asked him to leave. So, all right, we got coach basically throwing the player completely under the bus saying, you know, he wouldn't play. And in that case, I think, you know what, coach is well within his rights to uh, lay the law down, especially new coach trying to quote unquote change the culture. But then here's what Corte Sapp tweeted Never would I disrespect my team, my coaches, my family, or the fans by not giving my all for Tennessee. I'm only going to address the situ- situation publicly once, knowing the current narrative has been created through miscommunication. During the UT versus UF game, I never was asked, nor did I refuse, to go into the game. There was a sideline confrontation, parentheses, I'm sure will be resolved internally, that occurred, and the other party involved had to be restrained. So, Pete, first of all, I don't know whether you can answer he said, she said, or he said, he said, what about this, who's right, who's wrong, but what does this tell you about what's going on in Tennessee right now? So I saw the clip you were talking about, Pat, and I think my big takeaway, especially with some miscommunication here, is that Pruitt came off really smug. He was like drinking his water and, oh, you know, that's that, that's not going to fly around here in these parts. And it's like, look, you just got boat raced by Florida. And then you're, you're going high and mighty, dumping Butch Jones under the bus and talking about how things are going to be. And then the guy comes out a few hours later and undercuts your version of the events. It was just all very unsaving. <laughs> that was like my, my total takeaway from that. That wouldn't happen with Will Muschamp. It wouldn't happen with Kirby Smart. And now the emperor doesn't have as much, many clothes on here with, uh, with with Jeremy Pruitt. I just found the whole thing 
a little bit like a little little uncomfortable window into maybe the reality of Tennessee right now. I, I think he's taken a little too much joy in what a sordid state that program was in, was in when he took over it. And I think he tried to use this moment to beat his chest and, you know, talk about culture change. And he looks a little bit foolish in retrospect. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I agree with you. I, I don't think it's a good look. I uh, don't think it's a good sign of where things are down there. And, uh, you know, Jeremy Pruitt had not been a head coach before. So maybe he's still trying to feel his way through that situation. But uh, if you go back to July, you know, David Pollock on ESPN and Aaron Murray both, uh, both were saying they thought that Pruitt didn't have the, the, the demeanor necessarily to be a head coach. Uh, you know, that he didn't necessarily handle relationships and uh, things the way he should. And I think this just, this brings me back to that. It's like, okay, as you mentioned, there's a lot of other head coaches that would not have handled that situation or the fallout from that situation the way Pruitt did. Uh, that, that would not have been the comment, you know, uh, if, if it had been, like you said, a Nick Saban situation, it would have been, that's something we're handling, handling internally, period, end of topic. And uh, now, you know, he, he basically accused a player of quitting on the team. And then the player comes back with a completely different story. And again, I don't know who's telling the truth here, but the fact that this is out there now is just one more thing for them to deal with. And one more reason to, I guess, say, hmm, we'll see whether Jeremy Pruitt is cut out for this job. And guess who they get to play next? At Georgia. Then followed by at Auburn. Then followed by Alabama. So if you've already been housed by two other FBS opponents. You're now going to play three of probably the top 10 teams in the country. Good luck with that. We'll see what shape they are in coming out of that. And I think what Pruitt fails to understand here, Pat, is this is the most interesting thing about Tennessee, <laughs> the linebacker going Vontae Davis on him. You know, <laughs> yeah. he's, he's just ready to, he just thought it was an offhanded comment to move on. But this has sort of captured the nation's attention, much more so than the general ineptitude of his team on the field. So I, I think he underestimated what a hot button topic this would become, and that's going to blow back up in his face here as he goes on to get mauled in those three games. <laughs> yes, there, there will be some mauling to come. So, uh, I they boy, definitely time to circle the wagons in in Knoxville because they got issues down there. All right, Pete, let's wrap up the podcast with this. Uh, I drove on Sunday. Uh, from Columbia, Missouri, back home to Louisville, Kentucky. On the way out on Friday, I drove to Champaign for Penn State, Illinois, and then Saturday morning from Champaign to Columbia, and now back home. It was a lovely tour of the heartland, not the most fun, picturesque drive I've ever had. Uh, there's a lot of bad ones in college sports because you got a lot of college small towns you got to go to. Uh, we spent a lot of time in rental cars traversing the, this great nation of ours, do you have a, a least favorite drive, one that you just really dread making? Boy, well, first of all, we're obviously lucky to go to these campuses and games. Yes. So I don't want to sound like the guy who's, you know, for sure complaining about the peanuts yeah. on the plane. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but there are some dreadful drives, and we have to take them, and it's part of our job. My least favorite, which I've probably taken 25 times in my career, is the stretch between O'Hare Airport in South Bend. <laughs> when going through Gary is the highlight of your drive, it's brutal. <laughs> the thing that always gets me about that drive, though, is there's about 27 toll stops. 
And like it used to be, you have to have like exact change. <laughs> it was like you had to solve six different calculus oh, yeah. tests on the way there. Uh, and there's like nowhere to stop and get some to eat or drink. There's a couple toll, toll areas, but I just I just dislike that drive for its length, the traffic, road construction, and I swear they build a new toll booth every time I do. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's bad. It's very very bad. Uh, and that, that's probably what, one of the problems with Notre Dame is it's just there's not there's not anything around it. It's a lovely place when you get there. <laughs> But the getting there is difficult. And I agree. I want to echo what you said. We're not sitting around, you know, saying, oh, our job is so hard because it's not. We are not digging ditches. We are not, you know, putting our lives in jeopardy at all. We have really good jobs and and enjoy doing them. But there are elements to it that aren't like the NFL or the NBA or Major League Baseball, where you get on a plane and you fly from one big city to another. So there are some challenges involved. My least favorite drive is uh, Tallahassee to anywhere. <laughs> uh, Amen yeah, to that. Tallahassee is up North Florida, kind of near the panhandle there. There's never hotel rooms there for the big games. So you're always staying somewhere else. You can't fly in almost a- anytime. So you're basically left trying to decide, okay, do you want to fly to Jacksonville and stay there? Do you want to stay in Lake City, which is about two hours away? Jacksonville is probably three, four. Uh, do you mm-hmm. want to go to the other side, to the west side, and stay in Panama Beach, which I believe you did recently? I did. Yeah. Uh, the, the, I've done Lake City before. The hotels are a little sketchy, and I, I did love the uh, David Teal, one of the great writers out there who covers the Virginia schools, uh, went to the Virginia Tech game and stayed in Lake City. And when he checked into the hotel, the mattresses were stacked up against the walls because they had, <laughs> they had clearly been cleaning for bed bugs. So welcome to town. David. Yeah. I did Panama City Pat last time for that Virginia Tech game and a tropical storm was coming. Oh, yeah. So instead of waking up and driving 2 hours to Panama City and risk getting stranded in a tropical storm, I drove 4 hours to Atlanta. Ooh. A very pleasant drive. Mm. At what time? You know, I probably left at 10 a.m., got back from the you know, from the game around 2.30, went to bed at 3, woke up at 9, drove. So I actually got the connecting flight I was on. I was supposed to do like a 10 a.m. from Panama City or a noon from Panama City, and I had like a 3 o'clock flight. So I just basically sprinted four hours, dropped off my rental car, and, uh, yeah, jumped on the Delta flight back to Boston. There you go. Lovely. That uh, I usually stay in Jacksonville, which if you're covering a night game, you're leaving – the stadium at uh, Dope Campbell at, you know, maybe two, and you're hoping to get to the hotel at five, and you're hoping you're awake enough to drive those three hours through nothing. But Willie Taggart has done us a big favor, though, because there will be no reason to go to Tallahassee <laughs> in the immediate future. That's for sure. Uh, Florida State is off the itinerary for National College football writers for the foreseeable future. All right, that's our uh, podcast for Overreaction Monday. Appreciate y'all joining us and listening. Be sure to uh, subscribe, iTunes, uh, leave us a review. Be nice if you feel like it. If you don't feel like it, be nice anyway. Uh, Dan Wetzel hopefully will be finished with his reign of youth soccer terror and back to uh, to talk football with us later this week on the, the big podcast. So appreciate y'all listening. Have a good week. <laughs>